0: This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Why is the title of this week's episode so boring? Because it's that good. Bro sits down to interview financial planner Michael Kitsis on a sundry of things. If you know Michael Kitsis, you're excited. If you don't know him yet, well, I'm excited for you. All that and that's that on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Every financial planner knows a thing or two about money. But who do they turn to when they have a question or are looking to further their educations? That person is very often Michael Kitsis, one of the more prominent thought leaders in the financial services profession. Michael is the head of planning strategy at Buckingham Wealth Partners, co-founder of the XY Planning Network, among other companies, the host of the Financial Advisor Success podcast and the publisher of the Kitsis Report newsletter and the Nerd's Eye View blog at Kitsis.com. He has eight professional designations, including the Certified Financial Planner and Master of Taxation. He gives 50 to 70 presentations at professional conferences each year. He's also an avid bridge player and the longest standing volunteer and now board member of the Washington Improv Theater. And finally, the man loves a good blue shirt, Michael Kitsis. Welcome to Motley Fool Answers.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and join you today. So let's start with your story.
0: How did a psychology major with a theater minor, as well as all the pre-med requirements, become a financial planning nerd?
1: Oh, God, God bless the liberal arts education, right? Like a, a psych major, theater minor, pre-med student, the only thing I figured out by last semester of senior year was I was really certain I didn't want to go into psychology, theater, or medicine full time. So, you know, of course, my parents <laughs> were thrilled. Money well uh, spent. Absolutely. I, I did, I did love my liberal arts education. I don't, I don't want to knock it, but there, there was a lot of like, we've taught you to do some critical thinking now go figure out what you want to do in the world. <laughs> so I, I really landed in, in financial services, uh, by a a, a very random and, and haphazard path. Um, a long, long time ago. So my, uh, my grandfather passed away when, uh, when my mother was fairly young. Uh, and, uh, my grandmother had to had to work to support to at the time two two young daughters who were uh, who were teenagers and so back in the 1960s she went and worked for a life insurance agent for a, for a long-standing life insurance company called New England Life or the the New England at the time and so she was a secretary to a life insurance agent at the New England and after a few years when she'd working been working there my mother grew up got married to my father and my grandmother's boss did what any good life insurance agent does when your secretary's daughter gets married. He gave the new husband a life insurance policy, gifted my father the first year premium, and then basically made it back on all the commissions and all the renewals for all the years thereafter.
0: Of course, of course. The
1: gift that gives back. So uh, you know, decades later... <clears throat> Uh, my grandmother's long since retired. The original agent is long since passed away, uh, so my father has what in the industry is known as an orphan policy, which means someone owns the policy, but there's no agent assigned to the policy anymore because he had retired and passed away a long time ago. So my father gets a phone call from the local uh, office of the New England and says, "You know, Mister Kitsis, you have this long-standing life insurance policy with us. No one's been out to see you for a very long time. Could we come out and review the policy?" Father said, sure, he'd had the thing for 20 odd years. And so uh, the agent comes out, reviews the life insurance policy, can gives my father an update on, you know, what's going on with it. And then Uh, So at the New England, the life insurance uh, or the sales managers are often also life insurance agents. So this gentleman was actually a sales manager who was doing the review call. When he finished, he took off his agent hat. He put on his his sales manager and said, by the way, do you know anybody who's interested in coming into the business? My father said, funny thing, my son's about to graduate from college, has no idea what he wants to do with his life. You need to talk to him. And so a uh, uh, spring break for senior year, I came home uh, on break and got my interview with the life insurance company. And I frankly, at the time, they didn't tell me I was going to be a life insurance agent. They told me I was going to be a financial advisor. Uh, I, I didn't realize until later that this particular job was really just a life insurance sales job. But I came home, got the interview for the financial advisor, felt like it sounded neat. I... <clears throat> Kind of had a little bit of interest in in money stuff. I didn't do anything related to it in college, but like sounded neat. They said, you know, great opportunity, great potential. We want hard workers, all that stuff that, you know, sounds great when you're like 22 years old coming out of college. Uh, and so I, I graduated in, in Memorial Day 2000, right over the, the uh, right at the peak of the tech bubble. So, I uh, graduated Memorial Day Saturday. Packed home everything I had on Sunday. Drove home on Monday Memorial Day, and that Tuesday reported for work in a life insurance company. And, and I've been in the industry ever since. So, uh, I'm I'm only here because my grandmother's boss gave my dad a life insurance policy forty years ago.
0: So, obviously, it it kindled something there, right? You'd written before that you spent the next. 20 years, not only doing that job, but basically being a part-time student, gathering various degrees and certifications. And now you are just really impressively successful. Um, So I've said before on my show here that I think one of the neglected aspects of financial planning is developing your career. So what suggestions would you give to anyone trying to build a successful career in any field, really, not just financial planning? What have been the secrets to your success? What nuggets of career advice do you think you'll be passing along to your three kids?
1: Yeah, I I am a huge fan of of the idea and framing that our our greatest asset, our greatest financial asset, I'm I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, our our greatest financial asset is, is not our investment accounts and the and the dollars that we build. It's our human capital. It's our it's our ability to work, it's our ability to earn, it's our ability to try to invest in ourselves in ways that get us to higher levels and our jobs and our career paths and our tracks and what we're doing. So as you said, like I I took that very seriously through my 20s. And so I was a, I was a full-time worker, part-time student throughout. As, as you mentioned, I've got half a dozen uh, uh, advanced designations for the industry. I picked up two master's degrees along the way. I did all of that very part-time. I, I mean, I literally took the absolute minimum course load that i was allowed to take without being kicked out of the uh institution uh like two, one or two classes a year uh three if i had to cuz one of the one of the programs i did had a trimester structure like never more than a class at a time uh which you know for most of them was kind of like Two nights a week and Sunday mornings was sort of my routine. Like Tuesday and Thursday evenings, everybody, all my friends just knew. Like Michael doesn't go out on Tuesday and Thursday evenings because I'm 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 hanging out with my books for a few hours. And then and then Sunday mornings, I had like a local coffee house where I would just wake up in the morning, get going, trudge over the coffee house, hang out there for uh, probably better part of four hours, just doing doing my homework, doing my reading, doing my studying, and and just did that as a continuous routine. For the, the better part of about 10 years, maybe nine years of, of doing that. And cumulatively over time, it sort of pushed out what ultimately was the, the proverbial alphabet soup of, of degrees and designations after my name. But what that what that did for me career-wise was that's ultimately what launched and vaulted my career. Uh, it's what got me promotions. It's what got me raises. Uh, it's it's what ultimately led me down the path of discovering. Oh, I actually like this. Learning about this stuff so much. I'm actually going to start teaching some others and opened a door towards writing and speaking. Uh, and you know, even though I was a theater minor in college, I was all I was a backstage guy. I was a, a stage management, lighting design person. Never ever 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 on the stage. So. The idea to me that I've ended out 15 plus years later with speaking at conferences and being out on the, the front part of the stage as as a part of what I do was never even part of the vision context, but all of it came back to I stayed continuously invested in in learning and and particularly for the early years, you know, like. I'll admit I'm just a, a learner reader type. Like I'm I'm always gonna be relearning and checking out something. It's just kind of my my brain's always churning on things. But I was very conscious, particularly in my twenties. So I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it in a little bit more of a structured context where I get a thing to show for it at the end. Like industry designation, the degree. Like I would have probably done a lot of that reading just because I like reading, but I made sure that I did it in a way that would bolster my resume over time. And while it was not nearly as linear as I would like. Like, got a uh, got a designation, got a three thousand dollar raise at work. Did this program got like a two thousand dollar bump? Like it, it was never quite that clean. But when I zoom out and look back over the span of of the first least seven or eight years of my career in particular, where I was really focused on this, there was just a very steady stair step function of of growth of my career, and and a lot of the doors that opened were very directly connected to wow, it seems like this this guy's like really learning his stuff and putting in his time. I think that's a person that we want in our organization. Or I think that's a person we want to give more responsibility in our organization. And so just the way I the way I explain it or or uh or think about it sometimes is so you know if you're a young person and you've got a couple thousand dollars and you're trying to figure out you know what, what am i going to do with a few thousand dollars like i i finally saved up 2000 so dollars i'm trying to figure out what i'm going to do with my 2000 dollars and the the classic and the classic recommendation in uh in the business world these days is usually something to the effect of uh put it in a good good old fashioned uh Roth IRA and let that thing go grow tax free for the next 40 odd years and you know if you if you pull out a calculator and and do the math it's going to add up to tens of thousands of dollars over the better part of 40 years with a uh, with a moderate growth rate, but then I step back and say, "Well, what would happen instead if I took the two thousand dollars and I took some course or program and I got a and I got a thousand dollar raise, right? I didn't even get a two thousand dollar raise for my two thousand dollar course. I got a thousand dollar raise. For most of us, <clears> thousand dollar raise though isn't just a thousand dollar raise. It's a thousand dollar raise that gives me a little bit of a bump." uh this year then it's next year because that's my base salary then I go like change jobs somewhere else and eventually they always ask what did you make at your old job and like I got to tell them a number that's bumped up a little bit because of the raise that I got because of the program that I did and if you if you are in your 20s and you math that out over just what is an extra thousand dollars of of income due when you get to grow that you get inflation raises on that you get to take that money and then save and invest that in the future and what you find is you get 2x, 3x, 4x the wealth creation in the long term by not putting the money into your retirement account, but putting the money into yourself and is something that trains, educates, lifts you up. Now, there is some point where maybe we're, we're far enough along in our career where there's not as much room to lift our careers up as much in that math. And that math shifts. I do think there's sort of a early you sow the you sow the seeds and then eventually you harvest them later in life and later in career. But- particularly in early years, I think we just tend to really underestimate the return and the value we get by reinvesting into ourselves and putting those dollars towards programs that that lift us up, that lift our career up, that let us change careers, that let us change industries within our career, but finding a different industry that better rewards the career. There's a lot that we can do in that direction. Uh, but just a lot of the focus these days seems to be you know, in which accounts can I invest it and get the highest investment return with the best tax treatment? I, I love nerding out on that stuff. We'll probably talk about it later. I've done a lot of research about like exactly how to optimize all of those assets and all the different accounts and types and uh, and everything that goes with that. But you know, if you're listening and you're in your twenties, even your thirties, and and possibly even if you're forties, if you're still pretty energetic about working in the long run, uh, you've got enough time horizon that investing in yourself actually drives a much greater ROI. And and it, it really can just come down to like two thousand dollar program, thousand dollar raise a year from now, which kind of feels depressing to like get your dollars back. but it really pays in the long run. It really, really pays in the long run.
0: I'm glad to hear you say that by the way, since I'm working on my master's in personal financial planning. Um, but since you mentioned Fantastic. accounts, let's let's move into the to some questions about accounts, uh, specifically Roths, right? They're all the rage these days. Everyone's worried about higher tax rates. In fact, they will go up at the end of 2025 unless Congress does something. Um, do you think all the attention is warranted? Should everyone, even those in higher tax brackets, at least consider boosting the amounts they have in Roth assets?
1: I am. I have to admit, I'm really, really wary uh, uh, about this. You know, we we've actually <clears throat> we've cautioned about this a lot. Because I look, I I've been I've been listening to this discussion, <clears throat> particularly in our industry, for. For literally ten years now, uh, when you know when we got through the financial crisis and the Federal Reserve did quantitative easing and deficits ex- exploded, all the discussion at the time, you know, there were two things that were known truths to happen in the decade of the 2010s: we were going to have outrageous inflation, and tax rates were going to go through the roof.
0: Yep, absolutely, absolutely.
1: And neither of them happened. Yep. And 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 not to try to make the case of like, you know, people made this investment call and I made this other investment call. And frankly, I, uh, we don't I don't know that we want to open the, the inflation can of worms for for now, but uh, particularly given what's actually maybe finally cropping up. But if, so from the tax policy end, because I'm 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 more of a tax nerd than an inflation nerd from the, from the tax policy. end, I, I think there's a few things that we tend to to miss in this conversation. Um, the, the first is we tend to look a lot at tax rates and uh, uh, tax brackets and not a nearly as much as effective tax rates. So effective tax rates, just like take all of your income divided by all of whatever your tax bill was. And that kind of mashes together. There were some tax brackets and and there were some deductions and there were some exemptions and there's some things that are excluded, like all this stuff, mix all of it together what you find if you look at back over over decades of tax history is that brackets are really volatile and effective tax rates are remarkably ludicrously stable like our our effective tax rates just aggregate burden of citizens relative to aggregate income uh has really moved like single digit Percentage points over the past 50 years, most of that is, is, you know, I could count it on one hand. Like we're, we're not even more, more north of five percentage points of change. Even when we talk a lot about, well, back in the 1960s, we had these like top tax brackets where, you know, the big tax relief was we went from 90% top tax rates down to 70% top tax rates. And that's often used as a contrast to 37% rates now. But the, the distinction is, well, Back then, we had huge piles of exemptions. We had huge piles of deductions. Like, nobody paid those rates. In fact, the big controversial thing in 1966 was Congress did this huge study to analyze how effective these ultra-high tax rates were working, and they found more than 200 people who were making top tax bracket income, paying $0 in taxes – sound vaguely familiar and, – and decided that we had a problem in the tax system – and that we needed to change it. And the change that they made is the thing that we know today is the alternative minimum tax. It was implemented in 1969 in response to this report from 1966. And it was meant to take all of these deductions and exemptions that were being used by some ultra high income folks because they had really high rates, but no one actually paid the really high rates because we had really high deductions. And much of what's evolved over the past 30 or 40 years since is we actually got rid of a lot of those like really aggressive deductions and loopholes that existed back in the 50s and 60s. And as we've gotten rid of the deductions and loopholes, we brought the tax brackets down because it was actually basically the same net rate. We just kind of decomplexified the system. And the Tax Reform Act of 1986 under Reagan was rather famous for that, that it brought tax brackets way down, but it didn't it didn't crash revenue off a cliff because it also just cut out tons of deductions and loopholes that existed at the time that we just we just nuked out of existence. And so, you know, there there's this view that uh you know, tax rates must go inevitably higher because they've been higher in the past. The truth is like, well, okay, but when we raise the brackets, we tend to also raise the deductions and it doesn't actually necessarily significantly move effective tax rates all that significantly uh or or more importantly, it moves it less than just how much our brackets move at the margin by living our lives. So the point being like, okay, if your effective tax rate is 23% in the long run, it's going to end up being 25% because we do lift up aggregate taxation a little. Okay, but as it exists right now, you're having a low income year. You can put money into a Roth at 12. That's probably going to win no matter what. And conversely, like if you're sitting up there at 37 uh, and, and next year you might be down in the 20s because you just had a high income year because a bunch of stuff happened, I would just wait and do my Roth stuff next year when my bracket goes down 13 percentage points because just my life moves. That's actually, our, our lives move brackets much faster than Congress actually changes effective rates is the, is the point to it. And so navigating, but based on what's going on with us from year to year, I think becomes much stronger as a, as a sort of a tax approach to it. Than saying tax rates must be inevitably higher, and so matter no, no matter where I am and what's going on in any particular year, I'm just always going to Roth, 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 uh, and and that's before you get into the whole second branch of you know, taxes must be higher in the in the future, which is income taxes is not the only lever that Congress has to pull. Right, I mean we can. We can change estate taxes, we can change corporate taxes, we can change uh, things that we apply uh, levies to, uh, which was actually what Congress did for most of its history up until the modern income tax system. Uh, we can have a national sales tax, national consumption tax. We're one of the only developed nations in the world that doesn't have one. We have it at the state level, right? We're, we we get our state sales taxes, uh, but not necessarily a federal one. We may end up with a federal version, either a national sales tax or a value-added tax, which is how... Uh, it's done in most of Europe, and you know it, the taxation does hit you. It just it doesn't hit you on your tax return. It hits you at the cash register. If you put uh, a, a national sales tax or a VAT tax in place, everything at the register ends up being a few percentage points more expensive. But that will be true whether you buy it with your traditional dollar or your Roth dollar. Uh, they'll just they'll just get it by other means. So even if you believe the taxes are coming it doesn't necessarily mean the policy lever is going to be let's jack up the ordinary income tax brackets on everyone. In fact, it's a particularly unpopular thing to do because it's it's just very visible. We don't like our tax brackets. I'm a native Washingtonian, there's a rule that we have around here politicians like getting reelected. So, you know, they 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 tend to do things even that just show better than others. Uh consumption taxes are are less controversial than than uh uh jacking up income tax brackets significantly. And so to me, it still comes down to uh, the variability of what happens within our lives gives much more Roth conversion planning or Roth contribution planning than just saying tax rates must be higher in the future. Therefore, I'm just going to put all my dollars into Roth. I'm I'm much more of a fan and focus of, well, let's look year by year. Okay. Uh, You know, last year you Last year, you were out of work for a while because of the pandemic. Like, cool, let's get Roth dollars in. Uh, Your income's lower this year. Like, okay, let's still get Roth dollars in. Okay, but you got a great job. And then it turns out they have stock options. The next year, this crazy SPAC thing happens. And all of a sudden, you have a big income year because your your options got uh, liquidated. Okay, like time to go 100% traditional. And we're going to jam in as much traditional dollars as we can and take a tax deduction at our high tax brackets. And then when I come off my high income year, like maybe the next year, I'll do a Roth conversion. So I'll contribute it in a high-income year, and then I'll convert it in a subsequent low-income year. And you know the difference in those tax rates is free money that you get. So much more individually tactical from year to year or even a couple years at a time or a decade at a time because our lives move around. We have a lot of clients that we work with where uh, our, our 60s after work ends and before Social Security and required minimum distributions begin become an opportunity where we take – what could be years or decades of pre-tax dollars that we contributed at high tax rates and convert them all out at low tax rates, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, year after year after year in our 60s when there's no wages. So if we retired, there's no social security yet. There's no required distributions yet. And we can do it at ultra low tax rates. So with Roth, to me, just think, think tactical.
0: So I think most people will have at least a taxable brokerage account and maybe a pre-tax tax deferred. And then maybe they're following your advice, they're at low tax year, they got some Roth assets as well. So you have multiple accounts. The next decision is, which eggs am I going to put in which baskets? In other words, which yes. investment should go in which accounts, which in our profession is known as asset location. How do people make those decisions?
1: So when you think about asset location, there, there's, there's really two dimensions to think about. One is sort of the obvious one that tends to cop up a lot, like how how tax efficient is the thing in the first place. Uh, uh, I, I've got bonds that already uh, create ordinary income, so I want to put them in my IRA because uh, it's already ordinary income no matter what. Uh, my stocks generate capital gains treatment. That's a favorable tax rate, so I want to put that in my brokerage account because I get the favorable tax rate. That's sort of the classic view of it, like uh, line up the tax treatment with the account type. The caveat though is there's really a second factor to it that that I find is often missed, which is you also actually need to think about just what the what the overall expected return is of the thing that you're investing in the first place. Right. The the sad reality is getting like ultra tax deferred compounding growth on bonds right now just doesn't actually produce much more than having it in your taxable accounts and getting it whacked every year by Uncle Sam. Just, there's just not enough growth to compound, like the yields are just too low, would have been different 20 years ago. But there's just not a lot on the table today. Uh, you know, the cool thing about compounding is 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 how much it adds up over time. But if you want to get better compounding returns in a retirement account, you need some compounding, like you need some return to compound in the first <laughs> right. place. And so I actually think of it on more of, of like a two dimensional uh, scale. So if you envision like a little chart X and Y axis like going going up on the chart is the return and going across the chart is the um uh is the tax efficiency of the thing in the first place. If you graph this out, you get this shape that I call the asset location smile because it's kind of like a smile. It's a, it's, a, it's a U shape where on one end are high return investments that are very, very efficient. Those are still the things I want to put in my brokerage account. A, um, an S&P 500 index funds that I'm just going to be sitting on as a core position for the next Couple of decades, like great. I'm not turning it over. It's an ETF. It doesn't have internal uh, turnover that kicks out capital gains. Um, the dividend yield, at least, even relatively low. I don't love that from a dividend investing perspective. From a tax perspective, I like not having a dividend kick out and crank up my tax obligation. So maybe I'll put that over in my brokerage account. Then I might look over the other and say, hey, you know, there's also this um, sector rotation fund that I I really like. The manager has a cool strategy. It's got equity-like returns. I'm hoping it'll even generate a little bit more than that. But the thing's got 127% turnover ratio because the manager's doing their sector rotation thing, and it's in a mutual fund format because that's how the manager manages it, which means all those capital gains are going to kick out to me at the end of the year, and that is not good from a tax perspective. So that equity holding, even though it's capital gains treatment, I'm actually going to put that in my IRA. Because it's going to be fairly high turnover. I could get short-term capital gains. At best, I get long-term capital gains, but much of them are kicking out every year. That's very different than my S&P 500 core funds, where it's going to sit there for decades. So that equity position, I might put in my IRA. I might also um, take something like an emerging markets fund and say, okay, I'm just really bullish on emerging markets. This is not an investment call, just an example, Uh like, maybe I'm, I'm super bullish on emerging markets structurally over the next 20 years. I don't know what's going to happen in the next one, three, or five, but I think it's going to be big over the next 20. So, I'm going to take my highest return investment and I'm just going to drop that right into my Roth, highest expected return investment. It's going to be a wild roller coaster ride. We'll see if it works out. But if it does, I think that's the thing that can compound the best for me. And so, I'm dropping that over into my Roth account.
0: Because that's the tax free account and that's the one you want to grow the most. Because
1: that's the tax free account. So I take my highest return, my highest expected return investments. I tend to tilt them towards Roth. I take my highest return inefficient investments, they start filling my IRA. I take my highest return efficient investments and I fill my brokerage account. And then basically what whatever's left lands where it lands. And and this is usually how the bonds end up getting placed in this framework, which is look, in practice. My dollars exist in some combination. Um, I got 50 grand in my Roth. I've got $100,000 in my IRA, and I've got $150,000 in my brokerage account. And so I can start placing the things I'm going to pay, some high return things in my Roth and some um, uh, high return efficient stuff in my brokerage account. Just at some point, you'll place the things that have high returns are important, and you'll get to the other part of your diversified portfolio that maybe is a little bit less bullish, but we held it in there for some other reasons. And that will just land where it lands. So we have we have clients where their IRA dollars are, are heavily with bonds because uh, they actually have a lot of IRA dollars, not a lot of brokerage account dollars. And so the brokerage account gobbled up the few high return efficient investments and then it ran out of room. We have other clients where all the bonds are in a brokerage account because they don't actually have a lot of IRA dollars. And so, whatever IRA dollars we do have, we're capturing the highest return e- in efficient stuff we can, so we get some better compounding on the few investments that matter the most, and then the bonds land outside. But the key to all of it is just thinking you're you're, you're not just trying to place by tax efficiency alone. It really starts with what is the overall expected return, and and like literally mathematically, the part that matters is the highest return investments. Whatever you are the most bullish about, the most optimistic about, you think you have the most return potential, placing that in whichever count is best based on how efficient it is, that's what matters first. And then let the rest, which is usually kind of the bonds in today's environment, let the rest fall where it may. And I'm not trying to pick on bonds. At some point, all willing, will have higher yields and higher returns. And, uh, and, the, and the, that balancing point looks a little bit different. But particularly for where we sit right now, uh, you know, place the high return stuff first, that's the part that literally matters the most to get the asset location right.
0: You've written and spoken uh, publicly about sequence of returns risk in retirement. And I think it's also an important consideration for those you know, in the last decade of their careers, since a string of, of bad years could delay their plans. Depending on how you define terms, some people would say that's not technically sequence of returns risk. That's maybe like more red zone risk as it's come to be known. Um, so explain what you consider to be sequence of returns risk and how people close to and in retirement should manage it.
1: So you know to me the, the the purest aspect of of sequence of returns risk is is just this recognition that even if market returns average out in the long run to what what we're hoping, what we're expecting, Uh, We don't necessarily get there in a very favorable pattern. And once you're in retirement and taking withdrawals, you run this risk that I'm taking ongoing distributions, I get a string of bad returns, I'm taking distributions while I'm getting bad returns. And then by the time the good returns finally show up, I've dug myself so much of a hole that I can't actually recover. And so... You know, I and many others have made all sorts of charts and illustrations that kind of show this point that you can get the long-term return you thought and you can still end up running out of money in the meantime, even though you would have made it for your whole retirement with the return that you were supposed to get because you got it with a bunch of bad returns at the beginning and good returns at the end, which means you spent down your money in the bad returns at the beginning. And then when you get the good returns at the end, there's no money left or there's not enough left to carry us through. And so that leads us to all these different strategies and ways to defend against this both uh both in the uh in the early years of retirement and as you've noted, really even in the <clears throat> in the years leading up to retirement because at least for for some of us, the retirement date's a little bit a little bit fungible like I want to retire sixty two ish, but hey, if I get a, like a great run up in the markets and I can hit my number a little bit early, I'll I'll retire a little earlier. And if I'm getting close to my number and then terrible market stuff happens, like I might have to work a year or two longer to get there because uh, markets didn't quite cooperate. So we usually have a, at least a little bit of flexibility around that if we're if we're if we're not just being forced to stop work from a health related issue. And so. Uh very true that this sequence risk starts to crop up not only once we've pulled the trigger on retirement, but even in the years leading up. So the most straightforward way to 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 deal with this, the most basic level is it's why we don't hold all of our dollars in stocks when when we retire, or ideally even in the final years leading up to retirement. Uh, right. Again, mathematically in the long run, stocks out return bonds, which means I should. Like have the most wealth and the most spending by just being 100 percent in stocks all the way throughout my lifetime and straight through retirement, but sequence of return risk shows if it doesn't actually work that way because stocks can still have some really horrific decades, and if the decade is too awful, by the time the decade recovers, you have drawn down your portfolio too much to be able to survive, and so we get decades like the 1970s and the 1930s that did this historically, and and the 2000s were at least close as well. So the most straightforward way that we do this is we just hold a more, well, A, we hold a more diversified portfolio. That's part of why we tend to hold stocks and bonds and not just 100% in stocks. But the second way that we can manage this is you actually build a little bit more defensively in uh, either in the early years of retirement or even in the years leading up to retirement. So uh, I, I like to call this the bond tent strategy. So if you imagine like, you a know, a uh, uh, a graph with your allocation uh, uh to bonds how what percentage of my portfolio is in bonds so maybe you you start out in 30 or 40% in bonds in kind of a traditional 60 40 portfolio so as you're approaching retirement that 30 or 40% allocation to bonds starts going up it starts it starts ramping up and it might ramp up as high as even 60 or 70% as you're heading into retirement then when you get to the early years of retirement <clears throat> you're now huddled safely inside of your bond tent, and you start using it. You start drawing disproportionately from your bonds to draw them back down. Because I don't necessarily want to be really, really heavy in bonds throughout retirement, because if I live a long time, and particularly if inflation picks up, I don't have enough growth to get me what could be 30 or 40 years with medical advances. So I build up this bond tent as a protective layer Leading into retirement, I hang out in my tent in the early years, first 5, 10, 15 years in retirement. I winnow down my bond, my excess bond holding, my bond tent, my bond protection in those early years. Some people think of these as cash buckets or bond buckets and by the time i get 10 years in i am now through the danger zone of retirement and basically one of two things has happened markets have been terrible for the first 10 years of my retirement in which case it wasn't too bad because i've mostly been withdrawing from my bond tent and now my stocks are just kind of like a coiled spring at much favorable much more favorable valuations and ready to grow forward or market returns have been great in which case the amount i had in stocks is probably still giving me more than enough growth to last the 30 or 40 years of retirement because just if you get a really good bull market, it carries you pretty far, pretty quickly. And so if you got a bad sequence, you're in a good position. If you've got a good sequence, you're in a good position. And and that's the point. So uh you know, the other way to look at this, and 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 some folks actually know us by the research that I published on this with Wade, Wade Fowl, I guess now almost like seven or eight years ago, uh, we had originally written about it more in the context of equities that you dial down equities in the uh, leading up to retirement in the early years of retirement, and then you let them glide back up as you go through retirement. So it it, kind of got labeled as a rising equity glide path. I know for some folks, it feels a little bit weird to think about, like, if I'm going to be in retirement, I'm having more equities as I get older. So I find it makes a little bit more sense when we think about it in the the bond ten analogy. But it's really just the same thing. It's this idea that when I get to the danger zone, like it's not rocket science. When I get to the danger zone, how do I protect it? I put a little bit less money in the danger, (laughs) area. Like I build I build up a little bit more bonds as protection, and then I winnow them down through the danger zone. And then I get back to whatever my long-term allocation was going to be in the first place, like we're not spending bonds down to zero and ending out at 100% in equities when we're 80 years old. But we might build, you know, if we were going to be a 60-40 in the first place, we might start with 40% in bonds. It builds up to maybe 60 or 70%. And then as we get into retirement, then maybe it comes back down to the original 40%, or maybe you keep it a little bit higher because you're feeling a little bit more conservative in retirement. But just build up some protection, use the protection you built up, and then move on with your retirement once you've gotten through the sequence risk.
0: Speaking of retirement, long-time listeners will know that I just love talking about safe withdrawal rates, uh, something you have talked about and written about many times. So yes. let's get your take on this. You, you mentioned Wade Fowle, We had Wade, Wade on the show a couple of months ago. He thinks that safe withdrawal rates should be pretty low in these days of high stock valuations and low interest rates. What's your take?
1: So I have to admit, I I have a lot of trouble with this one, uh, and and pulling safe withdrawal rates down. And and much respect to Wade. I mean, we we we've sort of o- openly, politely disagreed around this for a while. And I mean, we've done joint research together, and and uh, 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 have gotten to know each other other pretty well. You know, my so here here's the core challenge of this like i've 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 been a financial advisor for more than 20 years uh and yeah you know, there's one thing you learn pretty quickly in your career as a financial advisor which is uh tr- trying to predict markets is a pretty cruel punishing thing um i am i am not in the uh i am not in the stock and investment prognostication business i'm in the how do we make the most of the dollars that we've got right Tax strategies, retirement strategies, asset location—all the different ways that we can optimize around what we've got. But you know, our market returns going to be good or bad over the next one, three, five, seven, ten years. I'm always wary about. That being said, uh, <clears throat> I was one of the first people that actually published research back in 2008 that showed pretty clearly safe withdrawal rates are very, very tied to market valuation. Uh, the safe withdrawal rate—if you just look back at the overall historical average, like. You know, returns the past 150 years, and what was the safe withdrawal rate that would have worked on average? It's actually about six to six and a half percent, because on average markets are not terribly valued. They're well, they're on average valued by definition, being on average. So on average, markets are average valued, and the average safe withdrawal rate that actually works is about six percent, six six to six and a half. Now the problem with that, right? If I imagine saying, well, since the average withdrawal rate was 6%, six I'm going to withdraw 6%, is it's kind of like the, the the person who walks through a river that has an average depth of five feet. Like, you may keep your head above water most of the time, but then you get to the deep part and you drown. Uh, so be wary of the averages. And if you look back even at the original Bengen research, uh, like, that's where this 4% rule safe withdrawal rate came from. It was this acknowledgement of, okay, well, the average withdrawal rate that would have worked historically is, is about 6%. But I don't want to do this based on the average because sometimes the average gets pretty – we get results that are much worse than the average. I want to know how bad it gets when it's really, really bad. The whole origin of the 4% rule in the first place was really nothing more than Bill Bengen ran this chart that looked at all of the different withdrawal rates that would have worked over the better part of 100-plus years of history. And what he found was the worst thing we've ever seen, the worst, 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 worst scenario we've ever seen of anything in history had a withdrawal rate of 4.15% which bill rounded to 4.1 and then the industry rounded to 4 and that's where we came out with the 4% rule. And and the key thing to understand about that is it's not in any way shape or form based on average returns. It's based on the worst sequences we've ever had and you know, we 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 published about this a little ways back just to look at like how bad those returns actually were. Uh, And like, they're pretty horrific. I mean, you're talking about retiring in the eve of 1929, right before the crash. You're talking about retiring in the late 1960s before an entire stagflationary decade of the 1970s. Now, again, because of sequence risk, it's actually less about what happens in like 30 years of retirement. It's mostly about what happens in the the first 15 years of retirement. And so, uh, you know, when we look at these historical scenarios, the average real return after inflation that was generated by a balanced portfolio in these scenarios was a 15-year was a return of less than one. And by real, you mean inflation-adjusted? Deflation-adjusted, because you know, if you if you did this in the late 1960s, s, first fifteen years of inflation was was five or six percent over like per year over fifteen years, and it got to double digits for some of that. If you did this through the Great Depression, your uh, your inflation rate was barely over one because we actually had deflation for much of that time period, then a little inflation at the end of the fifteen years with World War II. But if you look over fifteen year time periods. The average real return after inflation on balanced portfolios was less than 1% a year for 15 years. And that still got you to the end with the 4% withdrawal rate. That still got you to the end. So if you imagine an environment where your portfolio adjusted for inflation over 15 years is not even up 15% from where it is now. It's like it's 2036. Social Security already imploded. Your portfolio hasn't gone up more than 15% after inflation for that whole 15 year period. That would still survive under a 4% rule. So, I'm certainly not here to say like it's an it's an ironclad law of nature that it won't that it won't fail. Like we can have a future that's worse than anything we've ever seen in the past. Like that, always have to acknowledge and put that on the table. But I uh, you know, I, I think just sort of the, the reality of of at best history sort of fades from view. For some of us, we just haven't really looked at the history. I think most of us just don't understand how absolutely horrifically, catastrophically bad these time periods were. That originated the the four percent rule in the in the first place. Uh, I mean, you are talking about environments where you couldn't get well, you couldn't get better than one percent on a rebalanced portfolio for fifteen years. I mean, if you went through this through the through the Great Depression, your equities dropped more than eighty percent in the first three years. Now, granted, that's why we have stocks and bonds. So, like, not the whole portfolio, but your equi- your stocks fell by more than eighty percent in the first three years. And that still survived <laughs> 4% rule. Like, I understand valuations are bad, but valuations are bad. And you want to talk about 80% market declines and 4% still worked. So just, like, recognize how horrific market returns actually would have to be. Like, truly horrific beyond any stuff that, frankly, I'm hearing anyone talk about today to break the 4% rule. Now, I will certainly give a shout out for Wade and David Blanche and some of the others that have done the research around this. And then we published some other, some around this as well. Like This is a high valuation, low yield environment. Like These are the environments for which the 4% rule was made. This is not a like, let's go do the 6% because that's what worked on average. I mean, heck, the uh, uh, almost a third of scenarios historically, you could take a 7% withdrawal rate and it worked fine. I wouldn't be talking about that right now as a recommendation. (laughs) Like We are in the environment that is concerning, but to me, that's not a, therefore, the 4% rule is broken. To me, it's more of a, therefore, this is why we're taking four and not six, right? I mean, we're going from six to four. You are cutting a third of your lifetime spending just to protect against bad sequences in the first place. So that's a big haircut, but it's in there. We've taken that haircut. That's how we got from six to four.
0: Let's move on to the financial advice business. And you're a, a mover and shaker in the profession, co-founding the XY Planning Network, among other moves and shakes. What, in your view, is a current state of the financial services industry? And what about it inspired you to form a new network? Uh, did you think that something was broken and needed to be changed?
1: Yeah, I I, I have to admit, I, I I, think our our industry is pretty broken in... I frankly, a couple of different ways, I guess, living it as an insider for my career. Uh, you know, one, the, the biggest one that I think is, is, is finally changing. It's frankly a version of what I went through when I started my career writ large. Like I was hired to be a financial advisor. That's what it said on my business card. I was not, I was a life insurance salesman. I literally worked for a life insurance company that manufactured its own product and my job was to sell it. Uh, not anybody else's product, not the best life insurance product that was out there, ours. Now, we were taught that ours was the best life insurance product that was out there, so therefore everybody we met should need it. But I like, I literally wasn't in the business of giving advice, nor did I have any training and education. Like, I was a psych major, theater minor, pre-med student who was told I should give people advice about their life savings the first day after college. And the only advice I had was buy the com- the product that my company sells. Right, exactly. I think this is a huge problem writ large across the industry, Uh, that I I do see solely and steadily changing. It's it's why you see so much momentum out there, including especially in the media around asking whether your advisor is a fiduciary. A fiduciary is the legal term for, I actually have to act in your interests. And product salespeople don't. They represent their product company. Their legal obligation is to sell their company's products. That's what they're supposed to do. So, I see that shifting in the focus on fiduciary uh, consumers recognizing you need to look for RAs or registered investment advisors who have fiduciary obligations. Anytime you see registered representative on a business card and an explanation of their broker-dealer affiliation, a broker-dealer is an, an entity that was legally created to facilitate the sale of securities products, of investment products. So if you see insurance company, if you see broker-dealer, just almost by definition, these are salespeople. Uh, and not people in the business of advice. Not that salespeople don't sometimes give some very helpful advice as part of what they do, right? It also happens to be good for sales. But they're they're li- they're literally not there to be your advisor. Uh, and if you're looking for advice that that matters, so I- I've long spent a lot of time at the forefront of trying to trying to push forward. The industry actually being advisor, like being what we say on our business card, frankly. And 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 just if I look broadly at the industry of how many advisors are out there with all their different affiliations, the truth is it's only maybe a third of people who say they're financial advisors who are actually legally advisors. Interesting. Just sadly, like two-thirds of them are still affiliated with insurance companies or brokerage firms where they're just their their job, their legal obligation is to sell their company's products. Uh, and you're not even their client; your clients of the of the product company. So, the the first piece for me is just understanding the difference between a salesperson and an actual advisor. I've taken it to calling them financial advisors, so just people who are really in the business of advice, uh, not simply those who are advising. The. The second shift that's that I think is happening as the industry is – so the good news is there is this movement from advisor to advisor. Uh, commissions are getting wound down. Fewer people are representing product companies than they used to. Granted, it's still about one-third advisor, two-thirds product, but it used to be like 10% advisor, 90% product. So the, the, uh, the shift is on. The 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 bad news of that though is the ones that have moved into the advisor end have mostly moved into one particular business model, which is giving advice while managing portfolios and charging a percentage of assets in our management fee. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad model. In fact, I'm affiliated back to a, an advisory firm called Buckingham Strategic Wealth. And we work with retirees who want to enjoy their retirement and want someone else to worry about the dollars and delegate to us to do that. And, and our fee is a percentage of assets under management for helping them manage their retirement portfolio and giving them all of the tax advice and the spending advice and the sequence of re- return risk advice that that builds around that. So it's a fine model for people who have accumulated some dollars and want some help in how to manage it. Uh, And and the industry, because of that, the advisor segment in particular, is really focused on retirement these days. But obviously, there are a lot more human beings in the country (laughs) who have some financial complexity and maybe would like to get some advice and really struggle to do so because so many of the advisors are working on assets or management basis and the conversation usually goes something like this. I'm 37 years old and I got a lot of stuff going on in my life. Could I pay you for some financial advice? And they say, well, we'd be happy to work with you. $250,000 asset minimum will give you all the investment advice you want. It's like, well, I don't have 250000 Like, I'm coming to you because I would someday like to have $250,000. Exactly. Exactly. I don't have that now. That's why I want advice. Uh, and, and some firms are $500,000 or a million or even go up from there. So we we sought to specifically change this next XY Planning Network as sort of our, our founding mission and Focus, which was to put forth the idea that we can make financial planning more accessible by simply structuring it as a monthly subscription fee. And so We have a network now of more than 1,500 advisors across the country uh, who all give financial planning advice on what we call a fee-for-service basis, which means just charging an advice fee for the service of giving advice. Most of them work on a monthly subscription basis. Costs can be you know, anywhere from $100 a month to two dollars or $300 a month. Some are $500 a month or more because they have very focused expertises deep in certain areas. But all built around the idea that you know, if 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 we want to get some financial advice before we've accumulated all the wealth, like that's why we want the advice. Just the industry has to not only work on an assets our management basis. I think mean, it works fine for the people it works for, but it's incredibly exclusionary to all the other folks out there that want financial advice as well. And so we really set out to change that at at Network or XYPN, as we we call it internally, uh, and and have really found over the past seven years since we started it. Uh, a very rapidly growing movement of advisors who actually really want to serve a wider range of people, particularly those in their thirties, forties, and fifties. That's usually when we may have some complexity and are willing to pay for some advice, but there's just not accumulated portfolio dollars available to hand to some advisor yet. Uh, and so we really become a network for financial advice for those in their thirties, forties, and fifties, even some in their twenties that are are getting a little bit more complexity and seeking out advice. You know, nothing wrong with grabbing information on the internet as well. But sometimes life just gets a little more complex or time gets a little more compressed. We don't have time to do that. We need to hire an advisor. And and that's really the the area we're trying to solve for.
0: We only have a couple of minutes left. I know you have a meeting coming up, but I did want to get one last question in. Is that sure. besides, besides your breadth of knowledge, you're known in the financial planning world for getting an astounding amount of stuff done. <laughs> so give us your three to five productivity tips. How do you get so much accomplished?
1: So the the biggest thing for me by far is I am I am pretty sort of brutally focused on having focus on figuring out just what is the what is the highest and best use of of my time of my working day uh, uh, supporting supporting the businesses that I'm involved with supporting the organization that I'm involved with and if it's not a, if it's not really the best use of my time I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to put it on my calendar and so. Uh, for me, like it's, it very heavily starts with a calendar management of what am I even willing to allow on my calendar in the first place and to make sure that people don't gobble up my time on my calendar. I put everything on my calendar. I even put the time that I'm supposed to not be doing anything on, on my calendar. Like, Hey, next Tuesday, I'm going to be working on writing an article. I got some retirement research thing that's bouncing around in my head. I want to sit down and put it down on paper. So I'll go onto my calendar and just block the whole day. Like Tuesday writing day. No other meetings allowed. And now I know that I'm going to get the writing done on Tuesday that I really need to get done. That I think was really important to get done because I prioritized it. It's a version of the philosophy that at least I had first heard is attributed to Stephen Covey um, uh, of the the rocks, pebbles, sand analogy. So you can you can think of your time as a, a mason jar. Like think of like a glass mason jar in front of you. Like you know, fix big old glass jar that's the time we've got right we all have the same amount of time from global world leaders to us normal average folks like we all get the same 24 hours in a day 168 hours in a week the only thing that defines the outcomes is what we do with the time that we're given so you can think of the things that we have to do sort of sitting like next to the jar in three different in three different types there are a couple of big rocks like think like literally like a big physical rock uh these are the big things that are really important that that move us forward in our lives and our careers and whatever it is we're working on. Maybe it's a big work project. Maybe it's a new initiative. Maybe it's a, a, a program I'm studying for, something I got to go back and do. Like, uh, It's a big thing. It's, it's going to be a big lift. Beyond that, I have a bunch of things that are pretty important and urgent that I need to deal with. These are like little pebbles. Got to deal with them. Can't push them off too much. Got to handle them. They're not really as big as the big thing, as the big rock, but like they're out there. I got to deal with them. And then there's the sand, big pile of sand. Sand is all the little miscellaneous stuff that's constantly throwing through our lives. The, the one-off questions, the knocks on the door, the, hey, can I pick your brain for a moment, the unma- like unimaginably large flow of email and social media and all that stuff. Now, the problem for most of us is we fill the jar, like the jar fills up with the sand because it's just constantly coming at us, the email, the social media, people knocking on our door, all that stuff. And then we go like, oh my gosh, there were a few things I was really supposed to get done today. Like we start picking up those pebbles and we get the pebbles in there and we, we at least do most of our pebbles. And then by the time you go back and look at the jar, it's like 90% full with sand and a couple of pebbles on top. And there's this big rock sitting next to the jar. And there's no way the big rock's going to get into the jar at this point because there's only like a tiny little bit of breathing room left at the top and it's not fit in a big old rock. And so we never get to the big stuff that matters. And- the idea that uh, Covey had put forth originally, and I very much live this as a philosophy, is if you want to get stuff done, you have to put in the big rocks first. So, like, pour the whole jar back out, dump all the sand and pebbles back out. Take the now completely empty mason jar and put the big old rock in there first, right? So, if you just imagine a glass jar with like a big rock in it, it's sort of spherical inside a cylinder. So, like, there's a bunch of white space and gaps around it. So, great. So, the rock's in there. You got the rock in there. Now, pour the pebbles in. Right, and the pebbles are going to kind of bounce around. It'll sort of like fall into the corners where there was open space around the rock. Now take the sand, and pour the sand in. Now the sand is going to fill like every single possible nook and cranny. Right, it's going to find every gap around the rock, around the big old rock, and all of the pebbles that are in there. You will fill that thing absolutely to the brim. But not all the sand is going to fit in there because the part of the analogy is there's always more sand, rock, and pebbles, pebbles in total than there is room in the jar. But when you put the big rock in first, what you don't get to at the end is some of the sand. And by definition, that was the part that mattered the least. That was the part that was okay to get to. So like what happens in my world? Yes, there's like a lot of messages that I get on email that I just can't reply to. Uh, there's a lot of social media pings that I get because we, we do a lot of stuff on social media and I just can't reply to all of them. And I would love to. I would love to reply to all of them. But if I replied to all of them, I wouldn't get to the big rocks that are actually moving us forward. And I always place the big rocks first.
0: Got it. Well, Michael, it has been a pleasure speaking with you again. Thanks for coming on the show. And I hope to see you in person again at a conference sometime in the future.
1: Yes. Hopefully we'll get back in person as as pandemic finally lifts.
0: Yes. Great to see you again. Thank you. Well, that's the show. It's edited ride or dyingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay Foolish, everybody.